Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 22. Thank you, Brother James. We appreciate your leadership very much. And to all of those who led us in worship this morning, thank you very much. After a break last week, we return today to the book of Hebrews, where we have been engaged this year in a sermon series entitled, Jesus is Better. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is better? Well, for starters, he's better than anything this world can offer us. Amen? He's better than fame. He's better than money. He's better than material possessions. He's better than power. But specifically, according to the book of Hebrews, he's a better messenger than the angels. He's a better moderator than Moses, a better priest or mediator than Aaron, and he is the author of a better covenant, what we know as the new covenant or the New Testament. The author of Hebrews, who is unknown to us, could be the Apostle Paul or another, is writing this epistle to a group of Christians who are presumably of Hebrew or Jewish descent. And as such, it would appear that some of them are still clinging to elements of the old covenant, the covenant that God established with their ancestors, rather than fully embracing the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Thus, the author of this book seeks to make the point, Jesus is better. Don't go back to the old ways. You don't need animal sacrifices. You don't need a human priest. You don't need an earthly tabernacle. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus is now the one who mediates between us and God. Jesus is the high priest of a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. These are the key themes of this book, and we will touch on them once again today. The title of today's sermon is Jesus's Death Was Necessary. Now, in this morning's text, you will note that the author multiple times uses the word testament. Now, when we think of testaments, particularly in the context of church, the first thing that we think of are the two primary divisions of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. But as the author of Hebrews reminds us today, the word testament has a broader meaning as well. In fact, the dictionary defines the word testament as the disposition of one's property after death. For instance, the phrase, last will and testament. It's the broader sense of this term that the author of Hebrews would have us to consider today. And as we go along, we'll see why that is. Now, before we get into the text, let me say one more thing. And that is that the reality of death is very fresh on our minds this morning, is it not? Um, We laid one brother to rest yesterday. We will lay another to rest today. As we talk this morning about the necessity of the death of Jesus, I just want to remind us that it is through his death that we have eternal life. And so even while we sorrow today for the loss of our brothers, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so please keep that hope forefront in your mind as we work our way through this text today. All right, let's read our first section of verses. We'll begin by reading chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. It says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the one who executes the testament or the will. Verse 17, For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. All right, let's talk about these two verses. Here's the first point today. Very simple summary of these verses that we read. A last will and testament is not in force until the one who made it dies. Now, on the surface, this seems like a rather obvious point, but it's important to the logical argument that the author is building in this text. So let's look at it for just a moment. When a person develops a last will and testament, Does it go into effect immediately? No. It goes into force when the testator, the person who made the will and testament, passes away. As verse 17 says, it has no power at all while the testator is still alive. Okay, so let's apply this principle specifically to the Old Testament that God established with mankind. By the logic used in verse 17, the Old Testament could not go into effect, it could not go into force until a testator had died. Well, who is a testator in this instance? Who is the one establishing the Old Testament? Is it not God himself? And so we think, wait a second, God never died. So that, how then could he establish a testament with mankind. Oh, but in a sense, God did die. 2,000 years ago, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, died on the cross for our sins. But I'll grant you that didn't happen until way after the Old Testament was established. So how was the Old Testament implemented without the death of the testator. Here's what God did. God established a placeholder until the time was fulfilled for the testator, Christ Jesus, to come and to die for our sins. Now let's keep reading and you'll see what I mean. Let's continue reading, starting with verse 18 and reading through verse 21. It says, Therefore, not even the first covenant, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry." All right, so here's our second point this morning and how we describe these verses. Under the Old Testament, God decreed that animals would die in place of the testator. Verse 18 says, therefore, meaning therefore because the principle in verses 16 and 17 is true, 
that a last will and testament is only put in force by the death of the testator, not even the first covenant, which we would call the Old Testament, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, or we might say without death. But we know God didn't die to put the Old Testament into effect. Jesus didn't go to the cross until much later. So who or what died? Whose or what's blood was shed so that the Old Testament could be put into effect? We find the answer in verse 19. The answer goes way back in the Old Testament, all the way back to Exodus chapter 24 to be exact. When Moses was teaching the people all of the precepts, all of the commands that were contained in the law of God. And it says, after Moses finished teaching them, verse 19 says, he then took the blood of calves and goats and sprinkled both the book of the law and the people themselves. And as Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of animals, according to verse 20, he said these words, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And according to verse 21, he then did the same exact thing to the tabernacle and to all the vessels of the tabernacle, sprinkling them with the blood of animals. Here's the main point I want you to see. Instead of the testator dying to establish the Old Testament or covenant, animals died in the testator's place. And we know that the ongoing sacrifice of animals was at the very heart of the Old Testament. But what we also must understand is that the animals that were sacrificed in the tabernacle and then later the temple, these animals were never intended to be a permanent replacement for the testator himself. Rather, they were a placeholder. They were intended to point toward him. They were intended to foreshadow the one who was coming, to foreshadow Jesus until the time was fulfilled for him to come and offer himself on the cross. And we'll come back to that here in a moment. But first, I do want us to see one more very important spiritual principle in this passage. We find it in verse 22. It says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now here's the third point we see. A particular importance in the Old Testament was the blood of the animals that died. Why did Moses sprinkle blood on the book of the law? Why did he sprinkle blood on the tabernacle and its instruments? Why did he sprinkle blood on the people of Israel themselves? To us, that sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? Kind of yucky. But Moses didn't do it to be disgusting or dramatic. He sprinkled blood because blood, according to verse 22, both purifies the unholy and pardons sin. In fact, verse 22 goes so far as to say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In other words, there is no pardon. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from the shedding of innocent blood. Why is that? Well, it's simply a spiritual law that God put into place when he created the world. And that law is this, the forgiveness of sin requires blood. 
It always has. It always will. Even Adam and Eve's original sin, if you recall, God killed an animal. He shed an animal's blood to make Adam and Eve coverings of animal skin for their nakedness. Now, bear in mind, the blood described in Hebrews 9 was not just any blood, but it was the blood of specific animals that had been specially sacrificed to Almighty God exactly in the way that he prescribed. And that's important because we do not come to God our way. We must come to him his way. And when that blood of those animals was applied to the people's sins under the terms of that Old Testament, it both purified the people and it pardoned their transgressions. Now, here's the big question for us this morning. This is always the question of any Bible study. Anytime we look at God's word, why do any of these things matter to us? How does this affect us? Here's why it matters. All the things we've talked about today foreshadow Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Think about it. Just as the death of animals on the altar put the Old Testament into effect, the death of Jesus on the cross put the New Testament into effect. As the author of Hebrews says, the death of the testator is required for the testament to be in force. Jesus is the testator of a new and better covenant. He is the testator of the new testament. He willingly gave his life so that you and I could be reconciled to God. And just as those under the Old Testament were purified and pardoned by the blood of calves and goats, we in the New Testament are purified and pardoned by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And without his blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. And so I hope that we see today that Jesus' death was necessary. It was necessary for us to be reconciled to God. Jesus died in our place for our sin, not merely to be an example to us of what the ultimate love is, although it was that, but to actually be our substitute, to actually bear the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second, excuse me, Sproul said at the cross, a wonderful transaction took place. We gave Jesus our sin and he gave us his righteousness. And likewise, the opposite is true. Had Christ not gone to the cross, we would be forever lost in our sin without any hope whatsoever of heaven, without any hope whatsoever of eternal life. And so aren't you thankful today for Jesus? Aren't you thankful today for the cross? 
Aren't you thankful that the testator was willing to give his life so that we could come to God through the New Testament in his blood? And all of these things were perfectly foreshadowed by the Old Testament so long ago. Isn't God's plan truly amazing? I would ask you the question this morning, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? When we repent of our sin and we believe upon Jesus, his perfect blood covers us so that when God looks at us, we are justified in his sight. When God looks at us and we are covered by the perfect and spotless blood of Jesus, it is just as if we had never sinned. God no longer sees our sin, but only the perfect and holy blood of his son. The blood that was shed for us on the cross. His blood purifies us and pardons us like nothing else in the universe, like nothing else in existence can do. What can wash away my sin? You tell me. That's it. That's it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're ready for the blood of Jesus to cover you, to make you clean, all you must do is admit to the Father that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You must believe that Jesus died for you on that cross for your sin and your place and that he rose from the dead proving that he truly was the Messiah, that he truly was the Son of God with the power to forgive sin. And then not only admit you're a sinner and believe in what Jesus did for you, but finally commit your life to him. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus and be his disciple. And if you repent and put your belief in him, he will save you and he will give you eternal life. We're gonna give you an opportunity to do that here in just a moment. Let's first bow our heads. I wanna pray for us. And then after we pray, Brother James is gonna come. Father, thank you for the time that we have had together in your word. Thank you, Lord, for this simple yet profound and important truth that it is the blood of your son that saves us, that it is the death of the testator that puts the testament into effect. And Lord, we praise you, we thank you for sending your son to die for us in our place. God, my prayer this morning is that if there is anyone here who is not turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, that they would do that this very day. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.